Hello and shalom, everybody. My name is Julia Jassy, and you are listening to Nice Jewish Girls, brought to you by Unpacked, a division of Open Door Media. Before we get started, if you haven't already, take this moment and subscribe to this pod. You will not regret it. On today's episode, we are talking with Ashley Soroya, a therapist and advocate for mental health and body positivity. Long before this podcast was created, I've been following Ashley's work with admiration and inspiration. With so much intergenerational trauma in the Jewish community, it's really common for us to struggle with mental health. And until now, there hasn't been much open conversation about mental health in the Jewish community. Today, because of the work of so many powerful activists like Soraya, struggles with mental health are not stigmatized like they had once been. Going into this conversation, there's so much I want to learn from Ashley. What is intergenerational trauma? How does it affect the Jewish community? How can we be open about these experiences in a way that inspires our community to let go of this long-held stigma? And how can we find love for our bodies in a culture that has such a particular relationship with food? I am so excited for you guys to meet her. Let's do this thing. Ashley Soroya is a therapist, writer, and illustrator, exploring the topics of restorative justice, trauma-informed care, weight stigma, complex trauma, Jewish identity, ADHD, and eating disorder recovery. Her clinical approach centers the health at every size, or H-A-E-S, paradigm, and encourages the exploration of the impact of cultural and individual trauma on our self-perception. Her practice is guided by compassion, validation, and reducing toxic shame. Ashley enjoys working with various clinical frameworks and believes that lived experience and the patient should guide all therapeutic work. She believes strongly in the power of telling our stories and brings much of that literary background into her clinical work. Ashley, welcome. So excited to speak to you today. Yeah, I'm really excited to be here. I was really excited to get your email and to see what we're going to chat about today. I'm really looking forward to it. We like to start off in the beginning. Can you tell us a little bit about what your experience was like growing up as a Jewish woman, what role Judaism played in your life, where you grew up, all the good stuff. Yeah. I mean, I would say that Judaism has always been a really, really prominent part of my life. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, My family, they're not like, they're not um, deeply, deeply religious, but very culturally Jewish. Mm -hmm. Um, And my dad actually reconnected a little bit more with his faith after his father died. Um, and, but, but even still, um, I mean, I come from a very big family. My dad's side of the family is from down South. We joke that like, we're the only Jews that live in Sumter County. Um, um, and my mom, um, it came from sort of the more like classic Ashki, like her mom grew up in, in the Bronx, um, in like the Jewish, uh, slum areas, Um, and then we, I grew up with my sister and my parents in, uh, Westchester and, um, I was in religious education for as long as I can remember. I mean, I went to like a, a a Jewish preschool too. I think when we were really young, we went to this very small synagogue. It was like someone's house, literally, um, Mm. (laughs) like the rabbi would like stay in in one of the bedrooms on, on Chavez and stuff. And then we left there because it closed and I went to a conservative uh, synagogue. I don't know what what the first one was in terms of denomination. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I was, I did Hebrew school education. Um, I also, I mean, I will say that my synagogue 
was my social place, really. Um, mm-hmm. I didn't feel very comfortable at school. Um, I felt uh, very outcast, I guess. And at synagogue, I, I really found a, a place for myself. Um, and that was for many reasons. Uh, one of them being that like culturally, I just felt more comfortable, but I was never really a sporty kid. And I never really had a lot of confidence in like my creative abilities as a child. So I really focused a lot on um, advocacy work and volunteering. Like that's kind of what I did as a kid. And mm-hmm. so it, it fit really well into like USY and yeah. just like <laughs> going and doing stuff like that. So, you know, my friends and I would do that. And and I was bat mitzvahed. And, and then after my bat mitzvah, I decided to continue my Hebrew school education. Cause at that point, you know, you, you could sort of leave and like, it's okay. Yeah, yeah. But I stayed on with Hebrew high and I actually really enjoyed that experience. Not because it was like all positive. Like I remember my mom telling me a story about how I had had a Hebrew high lesson and they were talking about interracial marriage. And I was like, irate about it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, like it wasn't always good. Um, mm-hmm. but it was definitely a huge part of my life. Um, and, and really always has been, um, I would say the only time that I almost I wouldn't say lost it, but like felt more separate from it was in college, mm-hmm. which ironically was also the time in my life where I was like, maybe Zionism is evil, but there's <laughs> that. <laughs> Um, One thing that I love so much about your work and kind of how I first found you was that you talk a lot about therapy, about mindfulness, about like psychology, but it's also deeply informed by Judaism. And you talk about struggles that seem so universal in the Jewish community, um, trauma, body positivity, body negativity. um, And these come from a really shared space in Jewish history, the shared experience of intergenerational trauma and genocide and being you know, really affected by Eurocentric beauty standards. Was this an intentional relationship that you thought about when you started this work or has it come naturally over time? It's sort of like a chicken or the egg Mm -hmm. kind of thing because part of me feels like it's always been there and part of me feels like I'm discovering it. Like it's it's sort of that weird combo where like, because you're totally right, all of the things that, that I have felt drawn to in terms of therapy and psychology are just very Jewish. Yeah. Like, <laughs> like the ADHD stuff, mm-hmm. the, you know, the anxiety, the eating disorders, even before I, I knew I wanted to be a therapist. Um, you know, I was really, really fascinated by Jewish intergenerational trauma and how that might impact family dynamics, specifically abuse dynamics. Um, and I remember I wrote a paper on it in undergrad and I like put out a poll for like people to answer. Like if you're from a Jewish family, do you identify abusive dynamics in your household? And I didn't get great numbers on it, partially because people don't understand what abuse is. But mm-hmm. in any case, yeah. <laughs> um, it's definitely something that it's it's always been a part of it. And even now when I talk about it, I feel like a lot of times they're they're half-formed thoughts. They're not full. Yeah. And I'm still working on that, obviously, because I want to be able to articulate this to people. Yeah, yeah. But at the same time, I think part of the reason it's so hard to articulate is because it's such an embodied thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and and we don't have a lot of words for a lot of these things. Yeah, and I think it's something that our generation is kind of the first one to really reckon with it. I mean, intergenerational trauma as a concept and as a field was founded by the children of Holocaust survivors. So it's like really always mm-hmm. been a part of our work. But I think that it was kind of a taboo topic for a long time Mm. in the Jewish community. Like we're all new immigrants to the country. We want to be able to assimilate nicely. And talking about the way that we've been formed by this trauma is always kind of a 
a hard topic to approach. Absolutely. I was actually looking the other day um, because I was looking into intergenerational trauma stuff and Mm -hmm. I was looking at, I also, uh, you know, there's the whole conversation of Jews and whiteness and we don't even have to get into that. Yeah. (laughs) One of the... One of the complicating factors, though, mm-hmm. is that one of the reasons that we look more European is because of, like, rape. Yeah. And I was like, okay, so during the Holocaust, mass expulsion of our people, obviously there was a part of the Germans who were like, oh, they're inferior, so I'm not going to go near them. But I also imagine, especially because we all know that sexual assault is related more to power than it is to, like, attraction, Um that there must have been quite a lot of sexual abuse during the Holocaust. And so I started looking it up. And one of the things that I was reading was that there probably was, but we don't have any record of it because, A, the Nazis didn't record that. They record lots of things, but not that. Yeah. Um, And B, we as survivors, as Jews, as people who are post-Holocaust Jews, don't talk about the, the really horrifying parts of a lot of it. Like we talk about some of the more obvious, scary, horrifying things, like how you escape, how you survive, like those kinds of things. But in terms of like, and and this is a very binary thing, but Jewish women during the Holocaust, Mm -hmm. especially young women, Mm -hmm. we don't have their stories. No. Even though we know things happened. And that feels really almost like a microcosm of the Jewish experience in many ways, because it's like, we, we know it happened. And not only do we know like, like logically and intellectually, but we know it in our bodies. Like I can feel it. And again, I don't have the words for all of this, but whenever I talk to other Jews about it, they're like, yeah, I know what that is. No, I totally understand Um, it. Yeah. So like it's there and yet we don't have the quote unquote proof, right? We, We don't have the, the concrete, like, thing that white supremacy wants us to be like, here, look, I promise we're, we're struggling. Look. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, I, I can show them the emails to me and my therapist. So that's what they'd like to see. <laughs> right. Um, right. But I think yeah. that's something I can really relate to. Like there's Holocaust trauma. And then there's also like my grandma's grandpa. He was yeah. a Yemenite Jew and he never spoke about his family's experience. And, you know, I'm 20 years old and a couple of weeks ago, I learned for the first time that when he was escaping Yemen, his sister was stolen for it and taken into a harem and like kidnapped. Oh and it's just a story that was brought up casually right. at the Shabbat casually. dinner. No one thought yeah. twice about it. And I'm like, wow, there's oh so God. much like levels of these things that have happened to our family. And like all of us as Jewish people, and this is just in the past, like, Century, the Holocaust, right? Past century, like one le- one well, cycle ago, and that's that's the the thing that really frustrates me about mm-hmm. the intergenerational trauma conversation, specifically with Jews. And I completely understand that the the body of work was born out of Holocaust survivors, and mm-hmm. that makes sense to me, right? And you would think that as a people who have been genocided multiple times throughout the last couple thousand years, that we would like widen our lens a little bit. Mm-hmm. Because it's not just the Holocaust. Obviously, the Holocaust is an egregious example. It's the most modern example. Mm-hmm. But but that's what it is. It's the most modern example. Yeah. The Holocaust couldn't have happened if we didn't have the expulsions we had previously. Mm-hmm. So, like, when we're talking about intergenerational trauma, it's not just about the Holocaust. It's, it's about thousands of years of oppression and expulsion and food insecurity. And that kind of leads us into the whole eating disorder conversation. Yeah. 
which again is not something that like I knew consciously as a young girl, but the, the more I've learned about my eating disorder and the function of my eating disorder, the more I've understood that it was a way to hide. It was a way to be less visibly Jewish, you know, and whether or not that's logical or not, I mean, it's not logical, (laughs) but it felt, it felt visceral to me, Mm -hmm. you know, and it's not just about like, oh, our, our families and, and, and our ancestors starved and died during the Holocaust. They've been starving for years, yeah, generations. And, you know, now I have information now too. I know more about like weight science and eating disorder research and all of that. I know that an intergenerational experience of food insecurity is going to predispose you not only to disordered eating and eating disorders, but to fatness mm-hmm. because it's a biological safety measure. Yeah, it reminds me a lot of something, a conversation I had with my roommates, actually. So I got to college, and the first thing I wanted to do was learn how to cook. Um, mm-hmm. And then always want to, my roommates, both of them are Irish and um, Italian, like both kind of combinations on both ends. And my roommate was like, you know, for my family, food was never, like it didn't, it was just like we ate because we had to eat. Mm-hmm. And I was like, food means love in my family. Like if you want to show someone that Absolutely. you care for them, you will give them food. When I was studying yes. in high school for my AP exams, my friends would come over. My mom would pull out like brisket and Passover mm-hmm. leftovers and give us like meals, mm-hmm. not just like cookies or whatever. Yeah. And I think it's like this role that food plays really predisposes us, I think, because of its cultural dynamic, especially now in a place where obviously there's still food insecurity in the community, but it's not as, I guess, widespread. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I think it just disposes us to this really complicated dynamic. Yes. And so there's this tension between food is love, right? And, and it absolutely, that was my experience with it as well. And most Jews that I talk to, that's how they experience it. And at the same time, we, or I'll speak for myself, but I very much am a product of assimilated Jewry. Right. And so on the one hand, food is love. And it's the thing that connects us with our culture when, when some, you know, oftentimes nothing else does. And it's the thing that's policed the most I find in, in many um, Jewish communities. And of course that's not necessarily taking into account like race and, and those kinds of differences in the Jewish community as well. And even like denominational differences. Um, But for me and in my experience and in the work that I do now, it's the thing that I see most prevalent really. Yeah. There's this tension between food as love and food as control and safety. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's something that is really hard to under, I think for, for Jewish people in general, when you're going through the world and figuring out who you are, especially when it comes to like struggling with different mental health crises, it's really hard mm-hmm. to find people who really get it because it's so tied to our culture. Like one thing that I try to be more open about, and I don't think I really have been that open about previously is that I have obsessive compulsive disorder. I have OCD. I've had it since I was in preschool. Um, And like, as I'm older now, it makes so much sense. Like it's so ingrained in my DNA that that would be a survival mechanism. But when I went to go and see a therapist, I was like, I need a Jewish therapist because they will get it more than anyone else. Yeah. Absolutely. And I mean, I will say that like, there are a lot of Jews that I know that are unfortunately really divorced from their culture and their ethnicity and and all of that. 
Um, so sometimes, you know, even someone's identity can't guarantee that they're going to get it, but mm-hmm. it, it does, you know, it gives them an edge for sure. Yeah. Um, I know a lot of folks that come to see me specifically because I am a fat Jewish therapist and, and queer and like, that's what they're looking for. Mm-hmm. The OCD stuff, the ADHD stuff, I mean, neurodiversity more generally, very prevalent in our oh, community. Yeah. Um, and even to the point I, I was on TikTok the other, not the other day, a while back. Um, I find the most interesting things on TikTok sometimes. Oh yeah. <laughs> and this was someone who is talking about ADHD research related to Jews and how it's related to somewhat to our speech patterns too. Mm-hmm. We talk over each other and that's not thought of as rude in our mm-hmm. culture. <laughs> Meanwhile, like we do it in school and people hate us. Oh yeah. <laughs> but like with us, it's like, no, like we're just talking and we're contributing and we're showing that we're interested in the conversation. Um, but that's regarded as like a really disruptive ADHD trait that like mm-hmm. most Jews engage in. Yeah. So what does that mean for us? Like it's it's a it brings up a lot of questions. Yeah. And I think that's something that I was in a feminist literature class last year. Mm-hmm. And one thing that I was really thinking about a lot was the role of Jewish women and kind of this yeah. idea of taking up space when it comes yes. to like our bodies and the way we speak and how loud we are, mm-hmm. we're always viewed as kind of like a bit too big in all aspects of us. Like our hair, our noses, our bodies, the way we speak, all of Everything. it. Everything. And I Everything. find one thing that I love about your work is that it really feels like this culmination of like Jewish womanhood and not apologizing for taking up space. Yeah, I think so. I mean, I, the whole taking up space thing has been a very visceral mm-hmm. um, message since the beginning of my recovery. Like, I am allowed to take up space because I, I was I was bossy. I mean, I was told I was bossy. I was Same. bitchy. <laughs> I was the know-it-all, right? Like, that was my role growing mm-hmm. up. And so all I wanted to do was shrink. And then you have the, the added stuff that I was socially anxious. I felt uncomfortable. I felt physically different. Um, and I just felt othered. And so it was such a, an intense feeling of needing to disappear. Mm-hmm. And... In recovery, I really re-embraced a lot of my own deep-seated devotion to, like, justice and equity. Like, it's something I've always been deeply uh, concerned with. Yeah, yeah. It's something that has always mattered to me. And in my eating disorder, what often happens is your whole life becomes about the eating disorder because that's really the only way to maintain it. It, 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 Truly, it's impossible otherwise. And so I lost that part of myself. And then when I was able to sort of swing back around again and be like, no, like this is actually really deeply connected to things that I've always felt really deeply connected to. And this is about like taking up space unapologetically. And at first it was about my fatness. And And that still feels really uh, primary, right? But the more uh, the more connections I made, like I was saying earlier, the more I realized it's like it's not just the fatness; it's the intersection of Jewishness and fatness, at least for me. And the idea of taking up space in that intersection is terrifying. Oh yeah, like I talk about this with my sort of like fellow fat positive, progressive, queer Jews. And like, we feel very alienated in almost every respect. Like we don't feel comfortable in our progressive queer communities because Mm -hmm. of all the really intense anti-Israel rhetoric. Yeah, We don't feel comfortable in a lot of our Jewish communities because of the, you know, I mean, Republican Jews, conservative Jews, like, look, everyone's entitled to their opinion and their thoughts, but like, it frustrates the hell out of me. Mm -hmm. And, and I don't feel safe there. Yeah. You know? So it's like, 
where do we go? Yeah, I think that's something that I've also really felt, you know, in my own experience too, being in college and not really having a place to go in the same respect. And it's interesting that that's a universal experience. I would imagine that a lot of people who are similarly attracted to your platform love it. And part of why I really was so excited to have you on the show is because I see so much of like similar struggles that I've experienced and so many of my other Jewish female friends have experienced. Just, it all comes down to like the space that we take up and how we don't really fit into anyone else's space. We have this very, and I think it comes back to the idea of like viewing Jews as just a kind of European is really limiting because then we're forced into spaces in that respect that we don't fit into also. And there's this weird identity that kind of, it's an ethno religion. It's not just a religion. It's not just a culture. It's a lot of things at once. And it doesn't really make sense in the society's binary view of how things work now. Right. All the boxes are not made for us, basically. And that's okay. Like, Mm -hmm. I don't necessarily mind it. It's just stop trying to shove me into it. (laughs) (laughs) You know, like, I I don't mind that that's how you figured out your society. Like, I I, I mind sometimes, but like, (laughs) I can't do anything about it. Like, it is what it is. But it's just like, when I tell you that we don't fit, just listen. Like, that's that's the other piece of this for me. And I'm sure you feel this way too. Mm -hmm. It's like, I don't understand why Jews are the exception to every social justice golden rule we've ever embraced. I just don't get it. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> like, I, yeah. I've spent so much of the past year trying to do something that I will never be able to accomplish, which is understand anti-Semitism, like understand why people don't like us sometimes and like continuously for a millennia. And yeah. I think it just comes down to like when there's a social problem that people don't want to confront internally because they know that they have some sort of role in it, it's so much easier to displace that blame. And Jewish people have always been that punching bag. And I think particularly Jewish women have always been that punching bag. Um, And that's something that I think is really interesting because you've made the really bold decision to not just embrace who you are, but share that on social media, which is a place now that, exposes you to a lot of hate. Um, And I mean, I'm sure I'm not telling you anything you don't know because you, (laughs) I mean, being a Jewish person specifically, I think right now in this space is hard. Yeah. And I also just think like being a Jewish fat queer person is the most difficult thing I've ever, I mean, obviously I've ever experienced because it's my experience, but like it is it is quite something. And it definitely didn't feel like it reached its peak until I embraced all of those labels, right? Mm -hmm. Like before I really started talking about my Jewishness super openly, I was more focused on my fatness and my queerness Mm -hmm. and probably more so on my fatness than um, even my queerness because I've been in a straight passing relationship most of my life. and, um, And it's been pretty, aside from some funky stuff, it's been mostly accepted. Mm -hmm. Um, And so it was really focused on my fatness. And of course, I got a lot of shit for that too. Yeah. But then once I added the Jewish bit in, it like, it it, it shifted in ways that like I still can't quite articulate. Yeah. Um, But it it does feel really, uh, it feels combative to be on there. And I don't like that because that's not why I'm there. You know, like you were saying earlier, like, you know, why even talk about it this way? The reason I started talking about it was because I was like, well, if I feel this way, somebody else has to feel this way. 
Like that's always been my thing. I mean, I'm a writer, like first and foremost, that's always been my first love, so to speak. And I started writing about my struggles because I was like, the thing that helped me feel less alone and helped me feel like I could get through it was reading other people's experiences. Mm -hmm. So if I can help somebody feel less alone, then that's what I want to do. Absolutely. It also was a little bit selfish because I wanted community, yeah. <laughs> you know? And <laughs> so those two things, I think, uh, kind of override the fear for me. Cause it's not that the fear is not there. It is. Mm-hmm. Um, and the discomfort and, you know, the doubt and all of that. Right. And there's this other part where it's like, I have to endure all of that, but the reward that I get, it feels worth it. I think that that's something that is having a tangible impact. Like for me, seeing your page was a moment of feeling less alone. And that's something that I've really been thinking about a lot because, you know, my platform has always been, at least for the past year that I've been having a platform, has been about Jewishness and about my family's history and that sort of stuff. But I also, like most other Jews, have this piece of myself that's, you know, I have OCD, I have an anxiety disorder, um, which when I first started to get involved in the Jewish community, it was like a running joke amongst my friends that you've never met a neurotypical Jew like without some sort of anxiety disorder. So it's such yeah. a prevalent thing. And I kind of now have come to this mindset of if I'm experiencing it, so must mm-hmm. so many other people. And how great would it have been when I was younger if I could have seen right. someone in this space who like owned it. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. It's that whole like, I want to be the person I needed when I was younger, you know? Yeah. And that's why a lot of people go in and become therapists. You know, yeah. it's not a unique thing. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's interesting because therapy is a very Jewish field. It Like there are a lot of Jewish therapists. Yeah. But there's not a lot of Jewish therapists that A, bring it into their therapeutic work. Um, that B are also like fat and queer and talk about that. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, it's, it's the specific intersections that I think feel really, um, hard to find, but then funny enough, we find each other and we're like, where has this been? You know? So it's like, there's, there's something there. There's something in the water. Absolutely. And I'm, I'm really curious, like in your experience over the past, especially a few months, I I think Mm -hmm anti-Semitism has bubbled to a point. How has it affected therapy for you? How has it affected Mm. your conversations with other patients, especially Jewish patients? Oh, it's affected it a lot. I Mm. mean, especially because most of my patients are like 20s and 30s. So they're on social media a lot. Yeah. Um, I think it would be different if I had maybe an older cohort. Um, But the folks that I tend to interact with are very social media literate. Yeah. Um, And so, I mean, like during, it must have been like, what is it, July? So it must have been like March, April, May, like that three-month stretch when things were really hard. Um, I had people reach out to me and be like, I want to set up a session with you. Mm-hmm. Like I, I have a handful of people now that I work with that I just got during that period who are just like, thank you for talking about this in a way that's not so alienating. Yeah. Um, and so I, like I, in terms of that, I, 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 it's clear to me that there is a niche need here that people are attracted to. So there's that. And I think people are actively looking for it more. I mean, the other big shift is like, I've been talking about Israel, Palestine, Jewish identity, all of this stuff for like three years online, mm-hmm. not super long, but for a while. Yeah, yeah. And it wasn't until these last three months when things got really intense that all my mutuals were unfollowing me. 
all these people who I'd had conversations with for unfollowing me. And like, look, I I don't care about the numbers. It's not about that. It's more Mm -hmm. about what it means, what it implies. Um, You know, even people who didn't unfollow, but they weren't actively supportive. They Mm -hmm. weren't reaching out. They weren't seeing how I was doing. Yeah. So, you know, it's, it's been, I feel like existing online has been, has been odd and it's like, that's the best word. Mm -hmm. And it, it definitely fluxes a lot with, with like what's going on in the Middle East, really. Um, which is really frustrating because it's like, I don't live there. (laughs) (laughs) And it's your, your, your support shouldn't be conditional upon a piece of your Jewishness. Well, you have right. to support all of it or none of it. It's upsetting to see. Yes. Um, yeah. I mean, and it's also like, okay, so you know me. You know how I think about the world. Mm-hmm. You respect my opinions. You, for the most part, have only nice things to say about me. And then this comes up and suddenly I'm a genocide apologist. Really? Like what happened to the years prior of getting to know me and like, like what? Yeah. So yeah, I don't know that I answered your question though. (laughs) No, I mean, that really brings us to like the question, which is Mm. what you're experiencing is so universal. And I think that is kind of what inspired this podcast, which is Mm. connecting on this way that the shared experience we, we have as Jewish people. And I'm and how we like to really end every podcast comes down to this question of what advice do you have to give for other people mm-hmm. who are experiencing this, who need mentors, who need people to lean to, and are listening to this podcast and hearing your experience and connecting with it. What advice do you have them about navigating the world in this place? I mean, I think first and foremost, don't be afraid. Mm-hmm. Or if you are afraid, do it anyway. I mean, I feel like half the things I've ever done, I've done scared, Yeah, you know? Um, and sometimes you do. You ha- just have to do it scared because humans aren't really good at feeling prepared for things that they've never done before, which, mm-hmm. like, makes sense, right? So yeah. <laughs> sometimes it, you feel the fear and you do it anyway. And if you can accomplish not being scared, that's great, too. Um, yeah. There's this really wonderful Audre Lorde quote that is now, of course, escaping me. Mm-hmm. But it's something along the lines of your silence will not protect you. Yeah. It never does. It never has. And I would rather be the obnoxious, loudmouth Jew than somebody else. Absolutely. You know? And, and it's also okay if, like, you're not an obnoxious, loudmouth Jew. You know, some of us are quiet, obnoxious Jews. Um, <laughs> and, and I think it's important, too, that we, especially in activism, you know, last summer— there was a lot of content being pushed out about like, you need to be out in the streets. You need to be doing X, Y, Z. There's a lot of like, you should be doing this. Mm-hmm. And I think one of the things that I want people to, to really remember is it's not about the shoulds. It's about what do you care about and what could your role be? How could you contribute to this? What can you bring to the table? Because we all bring different things. Some people bring their bodies and they literally become human shields and they go to protests and and that's cool. That's not something that really works for me anymore. I did it when I was younger, but I have a lot of chronic illnesses. I don't like crowds anymore. It's just Mm -hmm. not, I can't do it. Yeah. But I can do something else. Mm -hmm. And that's still important. And if anything, you know, 
I would argue that having a plethora of various different ways to feel connected to your community, to um, disrupt these sort of narratives we have about Jewishness and Jewish women, womanhood, excuse me, the better. Yeah. You know, because like, I'm even thinking of um, the reality show that just came out. Yeah. And <laughs> I haven't watched it, but of yeah. course there's, there's lots of <laughs> anger and, and justified anger, right? It's a controversial, we're talking about um, My Unorthodox Life, which yes. just came out on Netflix and has created quite, Twitter the, is. quite the conversation <laughs> in the Jewish community. Yes, Twitter's a flutter. Oh yeah. Um, which like is fine and, and conversation is fine. And I think if we had more representation, if it wasn't just these three Netflix shows mm-hmm. that are basically all the same thing to some degree or another, it wouldn't feel this way. It wouldn't feel so um, important that we say, no, this isn't my Jewish experience. Mm-hmm. Because there would be more understanding that the Jewish experience is, is varied and vast. Yeah. It's like a mosaic. Like it's not, it is the opposite of, conformity in so many ways. Yeah. And I think that's one of the things I love about Jewish is that and the questioning, which also is kind of the opposite of conformity too. Um, And I feel like those are the things that that guide me. And and those are the things that I try to focus on, if only for my own survival. Yeah. I mean, I think that's something that we can all really relate to and looking toward the positive is the only way that Jews have been able to make it this long and the way that will continue to go on forever. So I... One thing I've loved about this conversation is just how relatable it's been um, and feeling like I'm talking to somebody who just gets my experience. So thank you so much for being so open with us today and for sharing such universal experiences. It's been an honor to speak with you. Thank you for lending your voice to this cause and for your your platform to this cause. And it's been been a wonderful conversation. Thank you so much for for having me. and, And I hope that, you know, people who hear it find it helpful. Thank you for sharing. It's been an honor. Thank you so much. When I was preparing for this conversation with Ashley today, I had a long conversation with my mom. I knew that this was an opportunity for me to be open about my own experiences with obsessive compulsive disorder, but I was really nervous. For much of my life, I couldn't even be open about OCD to my family. Actually, scratch that. I could barely be open about OCD to myself. Once I finally got my diagnosis and started therapy, I promised myself one day, if I ever had a platform, I would use it to share my story and to finally be open about my own experience with OCD. A lot of people start to struggle with OCD in adolescence, when they're in high school, college even. That wasn't my story or my experience. I started to struggle with OCD when I was in kindergarten. Back then I was too young to know what it was, and it took over a decade for me to finally be comfortable enough with the idea of going to therapy. Nobody in my life knew what I was struggling with. I felt entirely alone and isolated. I thought this isolated feeling would just be my life. I never thought I'd even say the words, I have OCD out loud publicly. I wanna go into politics. And I remember thinking to myself, I hope nobody ever finds out. Who would wanna vote for a congresswoman with OCD? And I think that's a big part of the problem because I sure as hell still wanna be a congresswoman and I still have OCD, I always will. So do a lot of people, a lot of really successful people. Mental illness doesn't stop you from being exceptional. Whether you're a politician, an author, an athlete, a doctor, anything. If anything, my mental illness has made me into a stronger person, a more compassionate person, a better advocate. I'd say that my OCD doesn't define me, but that isn't the case. I wouldn't be who I am today if I hadn't struggled with OCD my whole life. 
and I'm really freaking proud of who I am today. So that really brings me to this question of why I'm giving this monologue right now. Well, when I started this podcast with the Unpack team and my incredible producer, Rifki Stern, we had to pick a tone for the show. Did we want it to be serious, funny, educational? What did we want listeners to get out of this? And the tone we decided upon was inspirational. That sounds so cliche, but there's no better way to put it. I saw this podcast as an opportunity to tell stories that make us feel a little bit less alone. And I spent far too long feeling alone because of my OCD. In sitting down with Ashley Soraya today, I finally felt understood. Ashley gets it, Ashley owns it. Ashley Soraya is so much more than a nice Jewish girl. She's a powerful advocate who inspires everybody around her to share their own story, to own their own story, myself included. Ashley, thank you for making me feel comfortable enough to be honest. And to all of the nice Jewish girls listeners, thank you for being a part of this community. I am as inspired by you all as I am by any guest you've ever had. And this, my friends, is where we'll leave you for today's episode of Nice Jewish Girls. Hopefully a bit smarter and a bit more inspired. I would love, love, love to hear your feedback and suggestions for other nice Jewish girls to host on this pod. Email us at podcast at jewishunpacked.com. And join us next week when we'll be speaking with former Deputy Mayor of Jerusalem, Flora Hassan Nahum. Nice Jewish Girls is a production of Unpacked, a division of Open Door Media. Rivki Stern is our producer, and I am your host, Julia Jassy. Check out jewishunpacked.com for everything Unpacked-related and subscribe to our other podcasts. I want to specifically recommend Unpacking Israeli History, where every episode, my colleague Noam does a deep dive into a different event in Israeli history. I love it because it's this really nuanced and honest portrait of stories about a messy and amazing place. Check it out and let me know what you think. And follow Unpacked at all of the social media places like TikTok, Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, and Twitter. Just look for at Jewish Unpacked. Talk to you later, ladies.